recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada, a Get a Grip management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the good folks at the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, this is Restoring Darkness podcast. This episode of Restoring Darkness is brought to you by Evluma. If you're serious about contributing to the reduction of light pollution, go to evluma.com, hover over products, and click on Dark Sky Friendly Lighting. Both the Omnimax and Ariamax lights are International Dark Sky Association certified. The warmer color temperatures of the Omnimax reduce the more easily scattered blue wavelengths, which contribute to glare and sky glow. With Ariamax lights, you get full cutoff, which also means no uplight and a significantly reduced contribution to sky glow. And all of Avluma's outdoor lighting product lines come with dimmable drivers for even more control. If your customer is looking for dark sky friendly fixtures with energy savings while still meeting the demands of decorative lighting, look no further than Evluma. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Welcome to the Restoring Darkness podcast. Today I'm with Jesse Barber. He completed his BS and MS at the University of Wyoming and his PhD at Wake Forest University before spending five years with the National Park Service's Natural Sound and Night Skies Division for his postdoctoral work. He runs the Sensory Ecology Lab at Boise State University. Um, there's some scholars there that, that are dedicated to understanding how sensory environments and sensory pollution impact birds, bats, and insects. Welcome to the show, Jesse. Great to be here. I, you know, you've used some terms. So I don't like, and I've said this before, and, and I love the great work the International Dark Skies Association does. So not, not being critical of that institution, but I don't like the term dark skies. I feel like it's inaccurate. So we mm-hmm. use the terminology uh, restoring darkness incrementally where there is heavy light pollution and the preservation of night where it exists. That's the kind of way we want to describe what we're trying to do. But I've never heard the night skies division. I like that term. And then this idea of sensory pollution. Can you explain that term to me, sensory pollution? Yeah. Um, I mean, it it's sort of couching light and, and noise in the same ways we've been thinking about chemistry for a long time. That And it's, it's pretty close to your... Um, you know, recouching of night skies that we think about pollution as often being parts per million, that there is this dose of pollutant that causes problems and light and noise are the same work in the same way that, you know, a little bit can be bad for some organisms, you know, for some human biological functions. And as you get more and more pollutants, you get more and more effects. You know, I think the, um, and I, I, at the risk of, um, you know, creating competition where maybe it's not appropriate, um, I often compare what we're doing to the climate change movement, right? And I know this is the darkness restoration movement or whatever, but I find their, their metrics a bit crude. Like the carbon metric, that's all you're looking at or whatever. When it comes to pollution, there's a lot of things that cause pollution that are not easily measured in a ton of carbon or in, you know, and for light pollution, we have very difficult time measuring it. Um, How do we get, you know, and, and, and in the lighting industry, which was where I'm from, there was such a focus on the mitigation of carbon that lumens per watt became the only metric that people cared about. And then what happened is we created, we increased light pollution at a rate of 10 to 15% a year, every year for six years. And, um, we also, you know, sabotaged a whole bunch of other things in the lighting industry, like, um, uh, standardization and ability to maintain things and inter-brand compatibility with parts and all these other things. So this over-focus on, you know, crude, one crude metric, I think causes a lot of problems downstream. Have you, have you seen this in your work where we become obsessed with one or two metrics and kind of to the, to the, um, expense at the expense of all other things that are important. 
Well, I mean, I would say that sensory pollution isn't even far enough for that sort of inaccuracy to have arisen. (laughs) Like, you know, I do a lot of work on noise pollution in addition to light pollution and agencies don't even understand the metrics, let alone Mm. having agreed upon one that is is something that there should be movement around. And, you know, light is quite similar. And, you know, as you know, there's all different kinds of ways you can measure light and different ways they might be having impacts on wildlife. But no, yeah, I haven't, I haven't noticed that yet in, at least in the wildlife sort of side of things. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned sound. I, I, we often, um, you know, we could call this podcast restoring silence and it would be very similar. Um, the two seem to go together. I live in the country and, you know, because I live in a rural area, I'm aware of how loud cars are. You know, when a car comes down the road or a truck comes down the road at 80 kilometers an hour, it will wake you up from your bed at night. That's how loud it is. Um, You know, and if you live near a highway or or these areas, these things are extremely loud. Um, You know, how do you actually measure that piece of the sound when it's in a natural environment? You just take out a decibel machine and measure the decibels of of uh, steady humming drones that come from civilization or what, how exactly do you do it? Well, so we use long-term deployed equipment. So, you know, you can, you can think of light in similar ways that you, you might have, um, you know, lights that come on at different times of night. And, and as the natural light environment changes, the influence of artificial lights is, is different, you know, Mm -hmm. is influencing the overall lightscape differently. And the soundscape's the same way. So if you take a snapshot measurement, you're never going to really understand it. You have to integrate over days, weeks, and months until you actually know the footprint. And, and, and acoustics is undoubtedly more variable than light. But I, they are co-localized often, right? When we think mm-hmm. of urbanization, we think of, of light and noise. But they, they are decoupled in a lot of places in, in the United States, at least, and likely globally. We've done some analyses, um, some of my collaborators and, and my lab on looking at bird fitness in relation to noise and light pollution. Mm-hmm. And this is done with a continent-wide citizen science data set from Cornell, the Nest Watch program. Mm-hmm. So if you, you know, and, and this is, it's a, a program where people watch birds in their backyards and they note down when do they lay their eggs, how many hatch, what, when do they hatch? And we can use those kinds of metrics and link it up with um, larger measures of of light and noise pollution. But you could not disambiguate the two. You could not tell the independent contributions of Mm -hmm. noise and light if there weren't places in the country where they occurred alone. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of highways that are not lit. Mm -hmm. There are are lots of, of natural gas extraction fields that are using compressor stations to you know, pump resources out of the ground that are not lit. And then there are also lots of places like highways that are lit, even mm-hmm. when there's very little traffic or no traffic. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, you've got these, these places where you can pull apart the independent effects of light and noise. What do you know about the effects? Like, and I'm assuming that there, yeah, of course, there's only negative effects to these um, the light pollution well, of the sound, or I mean, we have the positive. Like, listen, I'm not against electric light at night. I think we need it, and I'm I'm in the lighting business. I sell lights every day, so I'm yeah. not against electric light. I'm not negative on the lighting industry, but I think we could do better. So, what are yeah. what are what are some of the consequences? Well, or yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of am negative on the lighting industry. <laughs> I mean, I uh, <laughs> I mean, I think pushing light for profit is you know the name of the game and that you know it's not new to any industry and it, it's how the capitalistic model works so but we the lighting industry has been preying on the human psychology of wanting perceived safety and perceived increase you know ability to to do things without actually understanding if those things are real and doing the research necessary to know what kind of lighting we need more light is you know better is the the frame yes and whiter light is better and the more uniform it is the better uh there's all manner of uh, presuppositions which are entirely unproven or just flat out incorrect 
Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna push back on you on the capitalistic model because the darkness restoration movement represents the single largest opportunity for make making money in the lighting industry. Um, mm. A lot of people, I'm trying to convince them that you know the lighting industry has been staunchly against the you know the the this movement for a long time. They were at odds with the IDA. They wouldn't talk to each other. They wouldn't have conversations. But what you know what strikes me as odd is that guys, if we start doing this it means a lot more lights and that every outdoor light on every building is basically needs to be removed and replaced why would we possibly be against something like that no i 100 percent agree and I, and you know and i work with with industry partners in that direction i was simply referring to how did we get here how do oh, we right. get to this place sure. where you know we have massive amounts of of blue led lighting all over the place um, i know i know how we got here I can tell you the answer to that question. Very simple. Well, tell me. Yeah. So um, what happened was about, you know, the invention of white light LED um, <clears throat> and its efficiency. Um, we got caught up in a, what do they call it? A rational, um, an irrational kind of hysterical um, situation where the industry began projecting all sorts of false claims. Um you know, uh, like the LEDs last forever, or um, you know, you'll never have to remove your 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 you do your municipal twenty nine thousand municipal street lights, and you'll never have to change one of them again or maintain one of them again. And everybody drank this Kool Aid from about two thousand and thirteen to maybe two thousand and eighteen. That was totally yeah. irrational. Um, on top of that, there was like a Silicon Valley sort of attitude about it. You know move fast and break stuff and this creative destruction sort of idea out of venture capitalists in California kind of entered the lighting business. The business needed to be disrupted. And unfortunately, it's not like replacing your BlackBerry and your Palm Pilot with an iPhone. This is critical infrastructure. It has massive impacts on the uh, on all sorts of different things. Um, and then p enter in the climate change movement with their consistent desire to mitigate climate change using the lighting industry as its key place to save energy. The lighting industry is the only industry that has, that has say that saves energy consistently year after year, reducing wattage and improving performance. And this predates LED. It goes back to T12 to fluorescence to T8 to T5, then transfers to CFLs and then, you know, constantly chasing efficiency. And so the lighting industry has been used as the place to create efficiency through in incentive programs and all this. Enter LED in 2013, you set up accreditation agencies that are now um, labeling products with um, different labels for their efficiency, and you set up all sorts of incentive programs, and the industry but, becomes, but why, why is that becomes it, focused why is that on one single thing. One single thing. Why has that efficiency been pushed? Because you know, the lighting... I mean, why? Because <clears throat> that's a good question. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not an economist. I'm a biologist. Sure. I'm, I'm, you know, but it seems to me that you're trying to sell new products. This is going to save you money. So underlying yeah, so, all well, of it the American, the American, right? No, uh, the American, I wouldn't say that totally. I think, I think there is a desire to make money, but the, what at the bottom of it is the American electricity tax person who pays an electricity bill. Okay. Um, has been having their electricity increased. And one of the reasons why the costs have increased is because what happens is the rebates are, why would a utility pay you to use less of their product? Like why would any business do that in a capitalist system? Well, what happens is the utilities simply raise the price of electricity to compensate themselves for the, the, the energy efficiency. Okay, so they take that, the rebates that they've been paying and the incentives they've been paying, and they push them out on the rate base and bill them to everybody. And so the, the lighting industry has been operating sort of in, in with subs, being subsidized by the American businesses and people that pay electricity bills for the last 40 years. And it, it went completely on steroids with LED. And so you have situations in the United States right now where you can get your light fixtures for a dollar, $180 light fixture for a buck, all paid for by the ratepayers of the people of X county and this utility. And they take that money, they don't lose anything, and they spread it out on the rate base. 
And so when you have that kind of incentive in an industry, um, you know, with the only metric that matters is energy efficiency or lumens per watt, what could possibly go wrong, Jesse? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like there's, you have a, you have a sub, an industry that is completely subsidized, but not by the government, not through taxation, but by people who pay their electricity bill every month. And so uh, the only metric that mattered was energy efficiency or lumens per watt. And now we're coming to terms with the fact that we have all sorts of problems in the industry. And so whether that's capitalism or cronyism or oligarchism or, you know, perverse subsidies I, or whatever, bad incentives. All I'm trying to say is that people try to make money and that's the way the world is set up. So if you have a new product that mm -hmm. is going to, to be better than the old project, product and that could be efficiency you're you're gonna buy it my grandma has this story of uh, uh, someone from the light company coming around when they just bought their house like god i don't know when this was a long time ago and they were offering free barn lights to be put on everybody's barn out back and you didn't even have to pay for the install <laughs> you know these are probably mercury vapor or metal halide sure. and i remember low pressure sodium up, or something yeah big sure. huge glaring this is a long time ago and you know so why did the power company back then give it to him for free? So it's, yes, the game has amplified, but the game's always been the same. Get the lights up and then people have to pay for them. And, yeah. You know, it's, yeah. So, but, but I, I think we're kind of off topic, at least sure, for we are the value of having me on the podcast. Yeah, sure. And that is that, <laughs> that, you know, light is in general bad for wildlife, for sure. And, you know, that, that's based on much more limited research than what we can say for noise pollution. But we do know that it does cause some interesting advantages. So for instance, birds extend the periods of when they're active. So they okay. forage longer into the night than they would otherwise, which can increase some measures of, of uh, fitness, of how many um, eggs do they have. So how is that possible if you know if unless there's some sort of kickoff or, or you know ancillary benefit but what what consequences does that have to the wider system mm. that you know that is unknown but you know same with noise pollution you find some species that will tolerate living near loud places and they benefit from living near those loud places because predators avoid that area mm. Okay, so, you know, you've got these sort of niche little stories about benefits, but the overall picture is bad news, that, you know, but... To, so, to, so you're saying that evolution, evolution by, by means of natural selection works with artificial light and sound as well. If you kept that sound there for a million years, you'd have a whole bunch of new species that thrived with that sound and that light, and they would change the ecosystem. It, it, like, well, that's what I'm... Yeah, it's adaptation some. or something. It's like adaptation get, to the environment. Well, what, we're, what I'm talking about is extant species, species that are living now and how they have changed mm -hmm. in response to what we're doing, you know, in terms of what they're capable of changing now with, mm -hmm. with their, let's call them their ancient genomes. Sure. Now, is light pollution causing microevolution? Quite likely. There's some, you know, preliminary evidence that it's reducing some moth species attraction to lights. Probably, mm. be, you know, if you, you think about it, the, the yeah. attraction is could be quite deadly and seems to be from the few studies that have been done mm -hmm. and then there's one study that indicates perhaps there's some microevolution but then what are the consequences of not being as attracted to lights in the first place like why why are they attracted to lights and that you know has consequences for understanding changing it why are they attracted to lights not to get off topic again but <laughs> no one no one really knows i mean there's the, the, the most, um, I think, attractive hypothesis that's, that's out there right now is that maybe they use the moon as an orientation mechanism mm. and that by keeping the moon off to one side, you can know which way to fly. And if you bring the moon down to Earth, then you can spiral towards it instead sure. of using it as an orientation mark. There's a, a new preprint out that argues that it might have something to do with flight control of sort of orienting your body um, towards what was the brightest thing. And then mm. once you bring an artificial light down, 
you might orient your body towards that artificial light. Both of those hypotheses would cause the insects to spiral in, and which mm -hmm. is what you see them happening. But it's some sort of, you know, co-option of a, an ancient mechanism that used to work. Yes. Yes. It's sort of like the sea turtle story, right? That mm -hmm. we know that they used to go towards the open ocean because it was the brightest thing. Now we have yeah. all these buildings on the land. They go the wrong way. But we love the turtles and we don't care about the moths, right? So that's why we're folk everyone knows about the turtles and not the moths. Isn't that interesting? Oh my gosh. Yeah, and insects <laughs> underlie all terrestrial systems. If they go away, we all go away. We we love the cute animals, eh? Isn't that interesting about us? You know, we have all sorts of weird things humans are. So I've often said on this show, you know, humans are not a, a nocturnal species, you know? Um, and, you know, it, it, people, you, that's obvious to say that, but when you actually think about it, in some ways, we're, you know, we are also suffering the same effects as the moths are, or what have you, that light at night affects, you know, the way we behave as well. And I think, I think that there's a lot of evidence to support that when you're, but when you, um, and maybe it's anecdotal or if it's studied or not, um, why, uh, bats? So in this movement, we hear a lot about turtles, but the second mm -hmm. most common animal that you, that people talk about when it comes to darkness restoration as a kind of signal species is bats. Why are bats so important? Well, I mean, they're incredibly important for for pollination seed dispersal insect control you know just sort of basic ecosystem services but i think the reason that people highlight them for light pollution is they're like you said they're the cutest furriest thing we can find that is actually really <laughs> attracted to lights but why are they attracted to lights and that's only only some of them are attracted to lights and it's because mm -hmm. they're following the insects there's a whole other group of bats that avoid lights and everywhere habitat is lit is essentially lost habitat. It's removed mm -hmm. from their ability to use. So if you look at it that way, light is, is take it's, it's, you know, it's, it, which is a, you know, an endangered species act term that it is removing habitat. Nobody looks at it that way yet, but I think the literature is starting to mount that there, there are these bats that do not use lit areas. And then you got the others that are attracted to lights and that's what people think of when they think of light pollution, but they're increasing their predation rate on the insects that are attracted to those lights. And they're, the insects have all these anti-bat defenses that don't work as well around lights. Hmm. And in addition to that, they find themselves on the morning on the side of a gas station wall where their camouflage doesn't work against birds, where the hmm. eggs they lay, the caterpillars or other larvae have no chance of making it to their appropriate host plant. And so you likely end up with insect declines related to light pollution, which then feeds negatively back onto those bats that are attracted to the lights. So at first blush, it seems like, oh, this could be an advantage to these bats. There's a smorgasbord of insects. <laughs> but, it, but in the long run, I, I think it has a very strong chance of being negative for all bats. They decimate the population of insects. They gorge themselves and then they, they decimate it. Um, uh, so, you know, we, when you were, we were talking about the moths there a second ago, there was a point that I had, but, you know, I know from this show, and I can't remember exactly where I discovered it, but very low light levels are visible to humans, right? And that lighting is a spectrum, right? So there is non-visible light that humans can't see, right? Do we know if bats and insects are able to, and I'm going to say, see these other spectrums or, you know, perhaps darkness is not darkness to them. Um, you know, maybe that, you know, we're, you know, when you think about, um, their environment, uh, you know, maybe they, maybe they can see, and I know that humans can see down to one foot, you know, one decimal, one of a foot candle or something like that. If after your eyes adjust is enough to see, you know, are, are, are these insects, you know, like the, like the bats with sound, are they, are they able to see other spectrums of light? Do you know anything about that? Yeah. So all insects um, and birds, and it seems essentially all bats have ultraviolet vision and, and a lot of life does. Hmm. Now, I interestingly, like the old light types in particular, metal halide and mercury vapor have really strong spikes in the UV part of their spectrum. And that's why entomologists like myself use them to attract insects. So we go buy work lights at mm. Home Depot and then, you know, metal halide, not because of all that white light that they're spitting out, 
but because of those ultraviolet spikes and that that drags in the moss to for us to study them now once you start getting into leds you've essentially eliminated uv from the from the spectrum mm -hmm. and but the bluer the leds the closer you get and the more insect attraction you get so the warmer you can make the colors the less insect attraction so that's why signify phillips has developed these clear field red lights that are implemented in some protected areas and adjacent communities in europe and we are testing them and have put them in grand teton national park in the 32 street lights that ring the largest visitor center in the park coulter bay and they're a really narrow band red with there's one white led in the in the bank that gives a little bit of of additional wavelengths there for marginal color rendering by humans but way better than a monochromatic light mm -hmm. and we we are finding that they're really effective in terms of insects they are attracting fewer insects when not for all groups but like let's take moths for instance substantially fewer moths are attracted to those lights because they can't really see the red you know what's it's interesting that you know um the assumptions humans bring to things that you know we see this way so everything must see this way we hear this way so everything must hear this way or i can't hear it and the world doesn't doesn't work like that but you know uh do we know anything about light you know i i i i've i've interviewed so many scientists and i've they they say that we're we're kind of like fish figuring out that we're in water with light you know, I mean, you have the absence of UV in LED light. You have the absence of near-infrared in LED light. Um, you know, you have people claiming the health effects of light by matching, and I put quotations for those listening, air quotations, by matching the, saying that if we match the lux level of uh, outside on the inside, you know, we'll create these health effects. These are all assumptions. Um, there's no evidence that electric light is anything at all like sunlight other than the fact that we can see in it. That's like the bit we can see. It, it allows our eyes to see. But certainly there there's something substantially different about sunlight than there is about electric light. Do you know what that is? Do you know what the difference is and, and, and you know, why we have so much trouble in this space of, you know, health effects? Yeah, and, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know any of the human sides of, of things. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm not, not very knowledgeable in that area. Yeah, I've been searching for the answer to that because, you know, you have different angles. Oh, near infrared, it helps this. It can heal wounds and all this kind of stuff. It actually heals wounds? Yeah, like you put this near infrared thing on the over top of the wound and it heals it faster. And, um, you know, then you have, you know, the sunglasses movement, you know, where or sunscreen and people should wear sunscreen and then actually there's information coming out that well don't wear that much sunscreen and maybe you want to take your sunglasses off and allow your eyes to have create vitamin d and so there's all these different you know people if you ask someone on the street if they thought sunglasses made you healthier the answer would be yes but in fact i it, it's t starting to emerge that actually sunglasses are not healthy you know, you probably should allow the sun to enter your eyes, especially in the winter, so that your body can create vitamin D. And so we have all these errors in how we think about light and the differences between electric light and light at night and, and what we want versus what's what's really good. Um, <clears throat> do you think that uh, we should advocate that the EPA of the United States declare wasted electric light at night as hazardous waste? Like something like that, like make a big move into that space? Well, I guess what I could say is I, I think it should be declared as a pollutant for wildlife. And I feel similarly about noise. And, you know, it's, it's hard to center wildlife because our regulatory industry of, of our country has not really centered wildlife ever. Mm. So it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty difficult to make, make those, those cases. I mean, if you think about chemical pollution, they, things start to get controlled when, when they affect people. But the, the, the effects seem to be pretty, you know, in lockstep that we, that, you know, there are different kinds of effects, but we, when we see negative effects to people, we see negative effects to wildlife. Mm -hmm. Like the circadian clock that is entrained by blue light in us is entrained in all um, mammals. And so, you know, there, there are these overarching similarities. 
but the the what my work and the art you know the the ecology field in general has shown about light pollution is that you can try to change the, the color you can try to change the intensity and it will make things a little better but in general it just needs to be dark mm. that's the that's the solution and 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 you know it's interesting that um so do you so that's a that's a <laughs> That's a, you're going to have a tough time accomplishing that because, oh, exactly. Um, you know, the, it's very, the, our, you know, Christ is the light of the world. You know, he brings the light to the darkness. There's all like archetypally light at night is, is something that humans like this. It's like the sunglasses thing. It's so, it's on, it's like the sunglasses thing times uh, magnitude. People are, are very, um, you know, uh, electric light at night is, is correlated with safety for them, whether or not it's true. You know, it, 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 you know, if you, if you have a legal case, for example, uh, there's the case, I can't remember where it was, where the, the tunnel uh, was so bright that people um, were having trouble eyes adjusting when they came out of it. Right. And so accidents were happening at the other end of this tunnel, because when they exited the tunnel, you're going from, you know, whatever lux it is in the tunnel to, you know, a much lower lux level and particularly elderly people had, it took time. This happens also when people drive under bridges on dark country roads and the bridges lit up under it. Uh, or they pull out of a gas station, like a Walmart gas station parking lot, and they pull onto a darker road. That The time frame of adjustment gets longer as you get older. Um, and so there's accidents that are caused by this. But the answer is never less light in the gas station or less light above the bridge. It's always more light everywhere. Like the, the, right. the, and if there's a legal case, the person will be sued because the municipality didn't have enough street lights. So everything, the entire thing from every angle, from the legal perspective, from our spiritual minds to uh, people's impressions of safety and everything else, it's geared to more light pollution. And that's a difficult problem to solve, which is but the purpose, stated purpose of the show is to solve it though. But, you know, that's what we're trying to figure out. Well, yeah. And clearly the solutions for wildlife you know, will will work for people too. As we push towards these warmer colors, you're going to have less of that effect you just described. And mm -hmm. you know, and that's that is why you know my my lab is dedicated to and trying to find mitigation solutions. Like even though I realize that quiet roads and and you know dark night skies are what will protect wildlife the best, people are going to put up lights and they need lights. So we currently have a project where we're working across several. Keystone National Parks testing different kinds of lights, some PC amber, some narrowband amber, narrowband red, and, you know, juxtaposing that against really low K white LEDs to see, you know, what, how, what are some of the functions that people can perform under these kinds of lights and how does it affect wildlife? And where is that nexus where we can find lighting that is acceptable as possible? And, and, one of the things we're finding is that spectrum isn't as important as, as you might think. It matters for sure, but making it less bright is <laughs> really part of the key. And so, you know, that, but then there you butt up against the human side of things again, because people want it brighter. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they, if they actually do or not. So, mm. um, you know, I don't know if they do. So for example, um, my uh, old co-host, John Bullock, he was uh, describing how the richer neighborhoods in, in Britain are starting to change their outdoor lighting to be um, shielded, lower Kelvin temperatures, mm -hmm. and um, not uniform. You know, so the, 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 mm -hmm. the, the major problems with light pollution are higher Kelvin temperatures, um, really bright and unshielded and uniform. So you have like you have your, your street is lit up like a gymnasium at night, you know, so you could play basketball at night, you know, full court, you know, and, uh, you know, it's spilling. And so we're starting to see, um, you know, people rejecting light pollution, not wanting it, wanting it to be minimized at the, at the high end. It's similar to, a, you know, somebody buying a $20,000 flat screen TV in 1999. Is this going to move forward towards the rest of the population? So you had mentioned that, you know, not that the most powerful metric is to reduce light levels or to turn them off completely when unnecessary. 
Um, do you see a future where that's possible? Like, never mind, like, technically, I believe it's possible. I, 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 not 100%, but, you know, we have a lot of sensors. We have a lot of digital controls. People could have, you know, turn the lights on to walk their dog at night using an app. Like, there is, there is a way. Uh, I don't know if it's clear yet. But do you see that as a possibility, or are you hopeless about it? Well, I mean, most of my work is with the National Park Service, and they are prepared to implement the you know solutions that will work for wildlife you know with with a their 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 strongest mandate is towards visitors so their their mm. that human side is still incredibly present within the national park system but they are committed to protecting the wildlife therein as well so I do think that in, in, you know, especially with this, this infrastructure bill and all of the money that the parks system has to mm-hmm. redo infrastructure, that there's a pretty strong chance they are going to choose some, what, you know, what the rest of the world might consider some pretty radical lighting solutions to try and protect those keystone habitats. Now, what... how do I feel about the outside of the park system? Yes. Yes. I'm, yes. I'm, I'm, I have pretty negative uh, hopes. See, I see it as a as a hundred year issue. Like I, I, I don't see it as something we can solve in the next five years, but we need to lay the groundwork for the next generation. That's that's sort of how after, you know, whatever, fifty episodes of restoring darkness, that that's in again in love working in the lighting industry and actually seeing selling lighting every day to people and actually seeing how difficult it is to even have conversations with people about this. Like, what are you talking about? I'm gonna have less light. Why would I pay for less light? That makes no sense to me. I'm going to buy lights. I want more light, right? Like that. It's almost, I'm telling you, it's very difficult to have these conversations. But, you know, I would say that the movement starts with preserving night where it exists, like in the national parks, like what you're talking about. I think that like just having that mindset, preserving it where it exists. And then let's see if we can restore some darkness to heavily polluted areas and begin incrementally taking, allowing night back into our lives and, you know, that involves research, it involves uh, regulations, it involves, um, you know, holding lawyers back from using lighting. Have you ever been involved in a lawsuit that involved a car accident at night? No. Oh, man. They, they start pulling out code books like this about lighting and everything else. So the lighting is very key, you know, and if it's, not an, if they, if it's presumed to be not enough, the damages go up against the municipality you understand and so we need to get uh, there's multiple aspects to the movement that we need to get under control and one of those is the legal or the lawsuit side of it and then insurance um you know if if you have an insurance company uh and you have a robbery they're going to tell you to put more lights um on the exterior of the building it's 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 everywhere in our society this this proclivity to increase light as a way to mitigate against danger or sabotage or robbery or whatever. And, but we have to start chipping away at those things. And I think it starts with preserving night in the parks. And you know what, maybe this will all happen long after we're dead, Jesse, but we have to start somewhere, right? (laughs) Well, and yeah. And I think the, um, you know, the protected areas, whether it's national parks or, or your city park are experiencing the same exact problems. When, when a light fails, the, you know, the person facilities is going down to the local hardware store and buying the thing that just seems the most logical. And that's going to be a 6,500K floodlight that they're going to replace that old warm light with. So parks are, are not these, you know, safe holds of, of sensory resources that you might think they are. Mm. There are there, you know, there's more visitor centers, more cabins for people to stay in more Mm. intersections where accidents occur. So lights are going up in parks too, just like everywhere else. So Mm -hmm. we are losing it everywhere. And so, you know, and that's why I think these, these, you know, radical mitigation solutions are necessary as a stopgap until people realize, well, maybe, maybe we could walk that trail with our red headlamps. Maybe we could just use lower speed limits to control accidents mm. in this, you know, this intersection in the park. But until then, if people need to have lights there, we need to find what lights are going to protect that habitat for wildlife the best. I couldn't agree more. And that's where the, I like the word preserving. 
because um you know it it, it it's actually you know we're trying to keep these habits i mean the average american i would i would argue has never seen the milky way i would i would yeah. and the average european for sure i mean you know there's there's much less access in um i'm a canadian but uh canada is basically a dark sky country um <laughs> basically the whole country how are the people live <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. Well, yeah, you're right. But I mean, you don't have to drive very far um, north. Right, right, I mean, right. we all live. Canada's like Chile on Argentina. You know what I mean? We just go right along <laughs> yeah. the U.S. border. Um, but, you know, so, uh, you know, but I, I'm not I'm not hopeless on it. But I I think one of the major things the lighting industry has to do. You talked about your hardware store metaphor. OK, so the lighting industry has become obsessed with product certification. Okay, so this product is, you know, dark sky approved or this product is DLC approved for energy efficiency. And we have to get away from the model of certifying products and get into a model of certifying people and companies. Like if you go right now, Jesse, and you say, I want to do this. Can you find someone that's dark sky certified or can you find someone that has a certification from you know, this university in, 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 in applying and restoring darkness. I don't think that exists. Yeah. I've never heard of it. Right. And so the industry has done a very bad job because that wouldn't be a degree from a university. That's an industry certification, right? It's like the, um, it's like the LC lighting certified. There should be a darkness certified as a counteraction to that. So that people like yourself and other other um, institutions and parks and these types of things have a have a resource they can call upon with somebody that they know actually knows what they're talking about um, and has a certification that they can point to that is indicative of some level of knowledge and expertise of applying um, you know and 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 is looking at an environment from a perspective of applying darkness to it rather than um, just lighting everything up. And so uh, the industry has done a very, very poor job on that. And, you know, there, there's no, I don't know of any programs right now that are actively being created um, to address that. But we have to get away from this product certification because a product can be misapplied. You know, even if well, it has a, 3, a certification. 000, yeah, go ahead. And a 3000K white light is hardly dark sky friendly, even though it's certified. Yeah, I mean, this is why product certification is never going to work. I mean, I still have light bulbs in my warehouse with CFLs. Now, CFLs went from being the symbol of energy efficiency 20 years ago to being the thing we want to get rid of the most. CFLs, they got mercury in them, right? And But they, those boxes, they all say Energy Star on them, right? <laughs> right? The average, if you show, if you take a CFL, there was actually, it's an, this is how how bad product certification is. Um, we had an article came out from the you know, my my local municipality Durham region, and they had this thing, you know, LEDs will be this and that. It was talking about changing your house to LED. In the picture, the hand was showing a CFL. So the 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 author of the article could not distinguish between an, a CFL and an LED light bulb, right? And they should not be expected to. And so this idea of product certification, it just downstream that those products last. They don't disappear after the, you know, the certification has been updated or whatever. It, it has the same symbol on it. So it confuses the public. Um, yeah. And the, the public should not be responsible for knowing all the, everything about, you know, lighting or dark skies or plumbing or whatever. The expertise is needed. And so I think we need to focus more on, on people, Jesse. Um, we're coming up at that 45-minute mark. Um, and yeah. I've, I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Um, and sometimes I miss a few things that my guests would, you know, want to bring up. Is there, is there any, you know, th thing from your research or what you're working on that you'd like the Restoring Darkness listenership to know about before we sign off? I mean, I guess the one thing that, that I'd like them to know is that, that the Natural Sounds and Night Skies Division of the National Park Service exists. And it, it is an entire division of the MPS devoted to trying to, to do their best to restore and, and protect sensory resources. And, that, and it's the only entity of its kind on earth. And <laughs> that's what we need more of on the regulatory side too, is you know, government 
groups that are dedicated to understanding these problems because you know you definitely need this industry side to interface with industry to to implement things but in you know particularly from a wildlife perspective we definitely need some some government regulation to understand how to protect wildlife you know it's interesting i just and, and i'm going to comment on that who was it i was talking to recently was uh, they were making the point that regulations can actually spur innovation. A, like a good set of regulations, you know, so it, it, that was communicated properly to an industry can actually, you know, create entrepreneurialism and create businesses and, and spur innovation because it creates a predictive environment for the application of whatever products and services people might make to fulfill those regulations and 100%. so the yeah and so the argument was that instead of all this incentive stuff instead of all this like carrot without a stick and why don't we try the regulation piece with darkness first and see how the lighting industry responds because you know you know are there incentives yes but they're kind of soft right now if there were some good regulations even if it was just for national parks there's a lot of national parks in the united states it's a huge country. Same with Canada. I mean, Canada's national parks are probably the size of Europe. I mean, I don't know. It's at least the size of France. You know what I mean? And so there's a lot of parks in Canada. And if there was some good regulations that stipulated, hey, we don't care what you do. This is the maximum light level. This is the color temperature. It has to be shielded. has to be controlled using this, whatever. If there were some solid regulations, you would see the emergence of companies that would respond to those regulations. And... Well, yeah, and, and we're partnering with Signify Phillips right now for that reason that they they're you know they're willing to do the R and D and develop these lights that that we would like to test to see how wildlife responds, and I think you know part of the reason they're interested in in it is there is a market. You yes. know, if all the national parks re replace all their lights, that's you know a decent chunk of business. But they also these parks can serve as you know, great showcases for for the rest of society. You go to a national park, and you're like, oh wow, this like low level warm light that's not mm. very many places is is nice and functional. Sure. And maybe my community could be like this. Yes. And we need these these showcase places. And there are many. Like I mean, uh, Mont Megantic in Quebec is an example of a, a dark sky city. I mean, Flagstaff, Arizona mm -hmm. is another example of 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 areas that have been you know, very successful, but these are a lot of times for astronomical reasons. Like it's astronomers yeah. driving the movement. And you know what? Totally. You know, I make fun of astronomers. I love you guys, by the way, all you astronomers out there, but I always make fun of them. Like I, I go to an, a, you know, I go to a, you know, a telescope, whatever the observatory, you know, once every 10 years. And then I look at those three dots in the, in the, in the telescope. And I say, Oh, those are the moons of Jupiter. Eh? Those three dots right there. That's crazy. Okay, great. So astronomy is very limited in its appeal the general public okay and most people would rather go to one of those crazy theaters where they're showing a video of astronomy rather than actually look through a telescope you, you know what i mean and i'm you know at the end of the day i have to confess like i have a telescope i like but i like to look at the stars i prefer to look at the stars through binoculars actually lying in a canoe on a lake that's to me that is the best combination of you know both beautiful clear sky nice quiet lake um, in Northern Ontario with a set of binoculars and I'll lie there for two hours switching back and forth. But, um, you know, most people don't have an opportunity to have that. So, um, but my final point on that, Jesse, is that, and this is where the lighting industry needs to really wrap its head around us and really come to terms with this. This is coming, whether it comes in next year, five years or 25 years from now, this movement is growing and it's going to happen. I think it's the issue of the century, but the lighting industry is going to solve this problem. And so, yeah. you know, we're the ones that are going to sell the new lights or remove the lights or put the sensors in or and commission the control systems or whatever it is. Well, yeah, and, and design them, like figure out how them. to drive these LEDs correctly. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's, I agree. It's all going to come from the lighting industry, but they're only going to respond if there's some sort of pressure on them. And regulatory pressure seems to be the way to start to me, because as you've you've been espousing, trying to have the average citizen be the pressure is, well, I think it's going to take a while.
The, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, 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 and before I sign off, I'd just like to say that people have enough stuff to think about, folks. You know, um, they have their own lives. And I would say that rather than, you know, pushing everything down and, you know, people are stupid, they don't understand, all this kind of stuff that people say. People don't care what you have to say, actually, most of the time. And, you know, they don't have time for, you know, learning every intricacy of a CFL versus an LED or anything else. So it's time for the industry to step up on our end. And then, of course, uh, I love what Jesse was saying about, you know, creating some really smart, solid regulations. I know a lot of people, I hate regulations. Bad regulations are bad and good regulations are good. It's a benign term. We need good regulations with respect to darkness. And I thank Jesse for his work and for all you listeners out there in the restoring darkness world. We are so happy that you have joined this movement and joined us today. And, you know, consider subscribing or liking our stuff on, on, on LinkedIn. I know LinkedIn has been going crazy for us recently with some of the, the articles and the news that we post on the restoring darkness LinkedIn page. If you want to stay in touch, I know Scott Walker is, is scrubbing the internet every single day for anything related to darkness restoration and night preservation. And it goes up on that LinkedIn page. Check it out. It also goes on the restoringdarkness.com website as well. So you can go there and check it out. But LinkedIn's kind of sweet with the way it just comes up on your feed. So check it out there. Consider just subscribing. And also buy some of our merch. You know, restoringdarkness.com. Get yourself a nice Restoring Darkness t-shirt with the wolf howling. Yeah, it's pretty fun. My kids love that stuff. They're always asking me to buy more of it. Super cool. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Look no further for dark sky friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.